Hello and welcome to the What If Movie Podcast, the movie podcast that simply asks, what if? I'm Hannah, a movie watcher and liker. I'm Bryce, also a movie watcher, not as frequently a movie liker. That is accurate. And I'm Josh. (laughs) And I spent a long time liking movies just because I thought, man, I could never make a movie. So I can't hate too much on movies, but... I think the longer I spend with Bryce, the more I find to hate in movies. So that's a shame. You're a terrible influence. Movies enable us to dislike things so that we don't have to dislike people, Mm. just their collective efforts. Mm. Well, we're not going to talk about that today. That's maybe a a topic for another (laughs) day. Today, we're going to talk about the prompt for today is what if Jurassic Park was directed by Guillermo del Toro? I will hand it over to Bryce. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Jurassic Park? Yeah, I'll give you a a recap for Jurassic Park. Though, to be honest, if you need a recap for Jurassic Park, you're maybe listening to the wrong podcast, maybe listening in the wrong, or maybe just existing in the wrong alternate reality. Mm Because I think literally every human being has seen Jurassic Park. But essentially, there's an old Scottish guy. He uh, finds a way, as many people are competing to do, turns out, uh, to clone dinosaurs using uh, DNA that's been found in a mosquito, and he makes, like anyone would, a theme park out of this. He brings in some people to try and get their signature of approval on this theme park. Uh, things go poorly as part of the poor consequences of someone trying to steal some of the dinosaur DNA. Uh, there's a T-Rex that almost eats people, that does eat some people. There's velociraptors that eat some people. Clever girl. And uh, eventually, pretty much everyone escapes just fine, having learned a lesson about man trying to play God and doing things because you can without asking if you should. Mm. What a recap. Thanks. Thank you. I thought that was an excellent (laughs) recap. But yeah, um, I don't really know why this idea popped into my head, but I thought it would be fun to just do something that's totally opposite, right? Just kind of these foils of each other. And Jurassic Park and Guillermo del Toro were like the first things that popped in my head. And I tried to come up with different ones and I couldn't. So it, it just stuck. This is this is fun. Absolutely. And I think with with more seriousness than I approached my recap, like Jurassic Park 1993 is one of the really emblematic movies of the 90s. Of course. Um, and that, of course, owes a lot to the score, John Williams um, and to the directing and it's just there's so many things in that movie that are so very iconic, I'd say decade defining. And I think it's a difficult movie to imagine being done by someone else. And so that's why I think it's a good choice to do so. Yeah. Josh, what was, do you remember your first experience with Jurassic Park? I actually saw Jurassic Park a lot later than I probably should have. It's one of those movies where as a kid, if you, if you don't see it, all of your friends are going to tell you about it anyway on the playground. And I just never happened to see it. I just missed the movie somehow. And then I saw it when I was older. And um, I actually had seen the sequel, The Lost World, first. And so hmm. I, uh, I always liked that idea of a T-Rex destroying uh, a city in that movie. And so it was interesting to go back and watch, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg. I mean, he makes you believe that these dinosaurs exist in the screen and 
So it's uh, his his visual storytelling is really his own. And by the '90s, you know, he's got 20 good years of mm-hmm. honing his craft. So I really like this idea of taking another very distinct director and seeing what he can add to the movie. Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be kind of fun. I I don't know when I first saw Jurassic Park. It's one of those I feel like I say this every time, but it's one of those movies that's just like always been around for me. I'm guessing I was probably in middle school just cuz it's kind of scary if you're a little kid. Um so I I was probably in middle school, but I'm guessing it was one of those things where like it's on TV and you catch it at different points mm-hmm. every time and so eventually you see the whole movie, but then you're way older by the time you actually just like sit down and watch it start to finish. But it's just so, I mean, it's good. It holds up. We were, we rewatched it obviously before this podcast and like, you know, the effects hold up, the story holds up. Like there's some silly kind of nineties moments, of course, or like weird science fiction moments, mm-hmm. but it's just a fun movie. It's so good. Yeah. So like everything except the computer yes. user interface, just like the graphics that are involved uh, in uh, this uh. Unix system. Yeah. <laughs> just like, oh, we need to slowly pan towards this 3D image of the file. Yes. Um, everything except that, honestly, I think holds up. My experience, surprisingly, was really similar to Josh's in that I'm pretty sure I saw The Lost World first. I remember hmm. watching The Lost World at my Aunt Ruth's house. And similar to you, Hannah, I think I probably saw every scene of Jurassic Park at some point before I actually sat down and watched the movie, just because it was throughout my childhood, just kind of everywhere. So you see bits and pieces everywhere. And then I don't remember when I finally actually said, like, I am watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm i just I'm kind of excited to hear what you guys think. I think this will be kind of a fun one. So let's let's jump into it. Josh, why don't you start us off? What? What Guillermo del Toro movies have you seen, and what did you take from it? Sure. So I was more intrigued with this prompt because of the del Toro aspect. I haven't really seen too many. I own one del Toro movie, and that would be Blade Two. Nice. And then I I had seen Pacific Rim once, and I decided I'm going to go see The Shape of Water because of because of this prompt. So I went to go see The Shape of Water. So. The two that are freshest in my mind that I rewatched to set up for this podcast was Blade Two and The Shape of Water, and in both of them, to, to varying degrees, especially in The Shape of Water, they explore this theme of otherness and being an outsider. In Blade Two, there's sort of this sense of elitism between the vampires, a class system of vampires, if you will, and Blade just kind of gets caught up with that, and so. Uh, although Blade isn't really part of that system, he's he himself is kind of an outsider because he uh, is this half-human, half-vampire, and then we see the the pure-blood vampires, and then Blade Two is all about this this new evolution of vampires that is starting to rise, and how the pure-bloods reach out to Blade for help, which is something that's very different for that universe, um, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, in The Shape of Water, basically all of the protagonists in the movie are all outsiders. We have Sally Hawkins' character, Eliza, who is a mute woman in the early 1960s. And her best friend, Giles, is a gay man. Her co-worker, Zelda, is African-American. And then, of course, you know you have this specimen, this creature, this living fish god thing 
that is is pretty other, pretty out there. So both movies uh, focus on that sort of topic, and that's kind of what I was applying when I was thinking of how Del Toro would handle Jurassic Park. I think that's really an interesting thought, kind of this outsider aspect, um, because that occurs in Pan's Labyrinth as well, or the Labyrinth of the Fawn, if we're going to translate it literally from the the Spanish. Um, It's very specific that it is not Pan. It is not Pan. It is not Pan. It is a fawn. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the, the main character, the little girl, um, is always kind of teased or ridiculed by adults for being, you know, interested in fairy tales. Mm-hmm. I know you're too young for that and, you know, get this out of your head. It's silly. It's not real. And there's also this, you know, civil war almost aspect. There's a there's a war happening in the movie. And so there's, you know, the military and then these guerrilla fighters um, who are also other um and and kind of their members as you get to know them are are outsiders too or different in some way Mm -hmm. yeah it's really a a movie of contrasts you know you really have this girl in her fantasy world contrasted against this incredibly serious and violent adult Mm -hmm. activity um and so i think that out outsider status and those contrasts between people and their the context that they're in really seems to stand out in all these cases yeah so how do we think that would apply in Jurassic Park who would be the outsider or outsiders who's the other well I thought at first maybe making Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant uh, maybe more other kind of more out there than the rest of the scientific community maybe they have some strange ideas but i think the guy actually who's the strangest or has the um the craziest ideas strangely enough maybe not the most eccentric guy uh not ian malcolm who you know played by the great jeff goldblum must go faster must go faster (laughs) yeah exactly i'm not actually picking him i'm picking hammond as the other okay and I like the eccentricity of, of Hammond. And then uh, if you've ever seen Belated Media and his YouTube channel, he does a great analysis of the ice cream scene and Hammond and kind of what that means for his character. And Interesting. Yeah, he did a really good breakdown for the development of Hammond and, and sort of the crux of that metaphor uh, with the ice cream lies in this idea of a legacy for Hammond. Uh, who and quote, the ice cream's all melting. Oh, no. He spared no expense. Mm-hmm. He says that ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in that scene, he says it uh, so despairingly. And so I think that going with this theme of other um, could be modified slightly to show a man uh, who has always been on the outskirts. Maybe we get a little bit more of a backstory of seeing him failing at uh, trying to create these parks or these visions for people to come see these attractions and never breaking through he gets caught in the crossfire of of chaos and unpredictability of life because he has this Mm -hmm. idea and and opposed to the corporation who who is seeming to monetize on this idea he just wants to bring something in for the people for people to enjoy to bring enjoyment to people and so maybe if we're focusing on this other um it's Maybe he spared no expense by maybe selling his idea to uh, a corporation, and maybe not him being, 
you know, this one corporation where it's a corporation versus mm. a corporation, but maybe he sold his idea and there's some sort of fallout from the incident and it's publicized as the fault of the corporation and all of Hammond's ideas and accomplishments are, are lauded by it all. Um, I think it's the outsiders, though, like Hammond and, you know, if we want to bring in Sattler and Grant and, and Malcolm, even in Spielberg's mm-hmm. version is definitely kind of an outsider among all the rest. They don't really know what to think of him and his ideas. Um, <laughs> they have this idea to make it truly functional, and so then maybe rather than it being a spectile, you know, life finds a way, so to speak, to survive and continue because of their care, um, because they relate to this otherness of the dinosaurs as being something out there and different from what uh, our society uh, is used to, and so maybe you you can't try and you shouldn't try to assimilate into you know what the majority expects, and so I think that's kind of where Del Toro could take it. Yeah, I, that. Think, I think that's a really really cool connection, kind of this you know making one person kind of this outcast that you follow through the story. And Mm -hmm. that was something I kind of picked up on too in rewatching Pan's Labyrinth is I think if Del Toro was going to be directing this, it would follow one character or at least a smaller number of characters. And not to say that you couldn't have the rest of the characters, but like Jurassic Park as it is, isn't really about one person. It's about the group, right? It's about the whole Though we do see Dr. Grant's growth with his That's attitude true. towards his children. children. Yes. So there, I, not to say that it's not about the characters, but mm-hmm. I think kind of leading into or going off of what Josh was saying too, like if you have this idea of the other or the outcast, then you maybe can like really dial down and focus on those one or two characters and kind of their journey through this world or through these events and how they're changed or how the world changes around them Mm -hmm. and you know i think that kind of that pulling not even pulling back but focusing in is something that del toro does really well and like really zooming in on this one person and their motivations and their you know what's causing them to act a certain way or do certain things and i think that would be kind of interesting to see like if you really zoom in on maybe dr hammond and Mm -hmm. and i we get some of that in jurassic park you know you can tell at the end he's when they're flying away in the helicopter, he's not even making eye contact with anyone. He's just so dejected and down, but it'd be kind of interesting to follow that journey even closer in the movie. I think. Yeah, I think so. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think if I were to kind of try and apply this uh, del Toro um, outsiderness to this, I think I might actually take it in a little more abstract sense and look at the alienation between the characters and this world they've encountered with the, the dinosaurs. One of the possibilities you and I had talked about, Hannah, was that since it seems like Del Toro often takes a more, perhaps more mystical than scientific approach, mm-hmm. is that perhaps in the Del Toro version, uh, they would not create this island full right. of dinosaurs, but happen upon it. And if you did that, I think I could really see him, again, capitalizing kind of on this alienation between Uh, This location, this environment that exists kind of in a world that's no longer um, prepared for it in a place where in the world they used to rule. But now this one small part of it and these human interlopers who have come in. um, And I think you can still get that monetary aspect Mm -hmm. in there. People wanting to capitalize on it. But clearly kind of these two 
ways of life really uh, clashing. And I think you could still get some of that, the outsider aspect, but in this case, both ends of this or both parts of this dichotomy are kind of the, the outsiders uh, to each other. And so you have kind of this mutual alienation going on and I could see him um, doing things with that. And I think you can still with that um, incorporate some of the, the character work that you guys are talking about too. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like this idea of almost the, the dinosaur Island being magical in a way. Um, I have not seen Pacific Rim, so I don't know how Del Toro deals with sciencey things, but I I think the sciencey things are kind of the weak point of Jurassic Park. And so I just I love the idea if Del Toro is just going to remove the science almost entirely and it's just unexplained. We don't know why this happened, but there's an island full of dinosaurs and we're going to capitalize on it, right? And and maybe with the best of intentions, we're going to protect them. We're going mm-hmm. to make sure that they can breed safely or whatever. But then you kind of get into this, you know, man exploiting nature or being where they shouldn't, right? Like men coming into this mystical, magical world and they don't belong. And so then perhaps everyone's the other, right? Or the right. outsiders, right? Like all men are outsiders to this magical reptile world. Then I guess maybe we're getting a little King Kong. Well, but, all right. <laughs> um, speaking of Pacific Rim, the worst parts of Pacific Rim are where they try to say anything vaguely scientific or technical. That's usually, we talked about this with Arrival, that's usually the downfall. Mm-hmm. One thing I was actually really struck by watching these movies was perhaps they're really not all that different. Like in in my mind, when I came up with this idea, it was kind of like, ha ha ha, could you even come up with more different movies? And like, yes, I probably could have. <laughs> um, something about the use of practical effects. Del Toro, um, in Pan's Labyrinth at least, um, sought out Doug Jones and I think has used him so a couple of times lot, they worked together quite a bit yeah they were um, he was the do... creature in the shape of water too okay yeah, that's okay. what i thought yep so i mean doug jones is just kind of he's magical in and of himself but um he's like a less digital andy circus he is yeah exactly um so you know del toro's really big on these practical effects right like having an actual person reciting these lines and interacting with the other characters um and that's honestly one of the strong points of jurassic park too is the Mm -hmm. practical effects but they both know where practical effects have a limit and where you need to use computer generated imaging um and so that's something that i don't think really would change which is kind of curious to me um but kind of that balance of cgi with practical effects is kind of what is so magical about jurassic park 2 and like you know these scary raptors that aren't just green screen right it's actual it's a raptor it's right, right there and well, they that can movie touch did it a lot of the work of like discovering what you can do yeah. with cgi a lot of those techniques were not in place in any way yet at that time yeah um and i think bryce you and i kind of talked about this too is del toro's really big into color mm-hmm. um and and every scene or part of the movie having kind of a color theme and that means something greater to the film as a whole um and you had kind of mentioned actually that while perhaps jurassic park would use more color and color differently if it were directed by del toro it actually does kind of include a little bit of that color where 
um, Dr. Hammond is always in white. Yep. And, and uh, um, Ian, Ian, Ian Malcolm. Malcolm is just always solidly in black and kind of, and they're the two characters that are farthest apart on the spectrum of this, you know, whether or not we should have this dinosaur world, right? And so there's whether or not one's good or one's bad, they're on opposite sides. Um, whereas the other characters are color-wise, costume-wise in the middle. Yeah, and I think with a, a Del Toro Jurassic Park, we'd have a lot less mud-colored dinosaurs. I think we'd have some extremely colorful dinosaurs because i think because that's somewhere you quite literally have a blank palette no one's really gonna say um no actually the brachiosaurus was not that color you know you can kind of go hog wild there and so i could really see um del toro doing some really creative things either uh doing a consistent color scheme for all of the dinosaurs to make them extremely different from the interloper of man or doing kind of different color schemes and dinosaurs between the carnivores, the herbivores or any several, any things you can do here. Mm -hmm. Um, There would definitely be a lot of orange. Orange. There would be orange wombs in this movie. Gotta have have some wombs. Pan's labyrinth has bright orange (laughs) wombs. Um, Pacific Rim has a giant bright orange womb at the bottom of the ocean. I think there would be some some prominent and symbolic bright orange in this movie. I I agree with you there. We actually we watched some of the special features for Pan's Labyrinth after watching it, and I think Del Toro said the word womb like twenty times. He really did. <laughs> he really likes this idea of, you know, a womb is like a safe space and like a that that's what's real, um, or that's what's magical or special or protected in some way and so yeah i think there would have to be some element of this womb of some sort Mm -hmm. yeah i trying to think back i don't remember any sort of womb like thing in the shape of water it's got to be there (laughs) i'm i mean he's in a tank right (laughs) yeah um he is uh but not not where he's supposed to be right so he's being held captive that's true. Ah. It's a prison womb. Maybe if they were given a scene of of where he was uh, originally, maybe there would be some orange wombs there. But I think just going off the visual storytelling of Del Toro, I got out of that movie, Shape of Water, and I totally believed this love story between a woman and a fish god. Uh, I think that the way that Del Toro is able to make you believe that these creatures are real, and so mm-hmm. I think they both would be successful. Clearly, Spielberg was successful in, in the way that he uh, handled these dinosaurs, and I think Del Toro would be no less uh, successful. Yeah, and none of this conversation is to say that I don't like Jurassic Park, because I totally do, and I think Spielberg is just the right choice to make that kind of a movie. Um, so if you're listening, Stephen, yeah, there's nothing sorry, against your work. personal. We still like we you. We love you. <laughs> um, I just think it's so... It's odd how similar the movies really are and like kind of their style of visual. I don't know. It seems it's curious to me. I didn't think that would be the case. I think some that might be another point of departure for a Del Toro Jurassic Park is in the Spielberg Jurassic Park, also known as the one that actually exists. Um, it's and you can disagree with me here, but I disagree. By and large, it, it's kind of a monster. Uh, I thought you might. <laughs> By and large, it's a monster movie. Yeah. Um, in that the dinosaurs, while there may be symbolism there, ultimately the dinosaurs are running around and eating people. Um, I could potentially see with Del Toro a little more sympathetic 
treatment of the the dinosaurs and that he might try and get us to um, view them in a more um, nuanced way. And I don't say that to be like, oh, Steven Spielberg didn't give us at all a nuanced vision of these dinosaurs. I think that'd be an absurd thing to say. But I could see where Del Toro potentially tries to complexify um, complicate is the word, actually. <laughs> no, but, I like complexify. Uh, co- complexify uh, how we approach these dinosaurs as beings, you know, sure. especially if we're kind of going with a, um, an alienation um, on both sides of the interloper outsider mm-hmm. route. I, could, I don't know how we'd do that, um, but that's not my job. Mm-hmm. But I could see um, that being something Del Toro might be motivated to give to his audience. Yeah. I can Mm -hmm. see that. That was one thing I kind of thought, like, if there was going to be any negative to Del Toro, um, it would be that maybe he would tend a little bit too much to the dinosaurs' needs as far as uh, showing them as these real and sympathetic creatures, Mm -hmm. whereas part of the fun of Jurassic Park is, you know, I mean, this... You look at Jurassic World, which was crazy in box office all over the world, and why? It's because dinosaurs are just eating people up. So that's what we want to see, and I don't think people would get enough of that under Del Toro. And so, if there was going to be a criticism um, between the two, I would say that you know sometimes you just want to watch dinosaurs eat people. So true, I and I right. don't want to care that the people got eaten. Like, I, I don't want to be overly sad I, about their I demise. I really do want to laugh at the lawyer getting eaten, <laughs> off, eaten the off of a toilet by a exactly. T-Rex. I don't want to have, like, a whole journey emotionally with that person before they die. <laughs> it does make me wonder how... So this is um, primarily from the movie I've watched more, most recently of Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and I've seen some of the other movies that Josh mentioned. Not Shape of Water, but Pan's Labyrinth. It's a very violent movie yes. in some ways. And so I do wonder how Del Toro would approach the violence in Jurassic Park. Because even though Steven Spielberg has given us a movie where people are being eaten by a lot of dinosaurs, there's usually like leaves covering right. up people, people being torn apart. There's a lot of suggestion of violence that's I think happening. The, the most graphic thing is when Laura Dern's character finds the guy's arm right, and it's been torn off. Um, but there's otherwise not like a whole lot of blood and gore. Um, but yeah, I think that would be kind of interesting. I will say I don't think Del Toro uses violence just for the sake of violence. You know, it always has a purpose. It has a place. It has a larger meaning within the story. And so that really would maybe, like Josh says, kind of mess up the the feel. Like you can't have dinosaurs causing violence for a reason. Well, that, that's a good point. Although in spe- uh, specific Grim, specifically Pacific Grim, I'm in no shape apparently to record a podcast tonight. But in Pacific Grim, we definitely have a lot of just like cutting through sure. uh, monsters with swords. And um, I think that's actually more of a design decision than it is a symbolism in that yeah. case because the blood in Pacific Grim is quite colorful. Because um, it's machine blood and no, it's like dinos- it's weird monster, monster blood. blood. Yeah. I should really, I should see this movie once just to to say I've seen it. You just gotta get that out of your system and so. prepare for Pacific Rim Two. Oh boy, it looks a lot like Pacific Rim One. Yes, um, <laughs> I think though, I'm glad you kind of mentioned about the sympathetic dinosaurs uh because if we if we do that and we make them more sympathetic one of the 
problems that I sort of have with Jurassic Park is the uh, the villain. I mean, we have we have Newman from Seinfeld, who is really our our main villain in this movie, and Dennis is his name in the movie. <laughs> really, his name is Dennis. Dennis Nedry. Oh, Nedry. Okay, I remember the name Nedry. I did not remember Dennis. Yeah. And so, if, if there's anything that <laughs> Del Toro could give us, maybe a rounder villain than what we got in Spielberg's and the violence. Um, the if I I I haven't seen all of Pan's Labyrinth, but if I remember correctly, most of the violence in Pan's Labyrinth comes from the humans. No, not the monsters. Right. The yep. the fawn the fawn never is violent, but there is another The Pale Man. The Pale is... Man is quite violent. Um but yes, that's only one scene. The rest right. of the violence is all The, the only adults. violence done towards humans is by humans. Other humans. So maybe that yeah. would be something too, is if we had a stronger villain that could give us that violence that we wouldn't get from the dinosaurs under Del Toro's sympathetic uh, portrayal uh, maybe that's something that we would um, be able to get that violence from we'd be able to get the violence from that villain instead of the dinosaurs yeah that's that's a fair point you know maybe whoever whoever your char- main character that's su- super invested right maybe that's john hammond maybe that's somebody else um, is willing to get violent to further this idea or further the park um, and make sure that it's successful or, you know, whatever. But yeah, maybe some of that violence then comes from people, which would honestly make it less of just a like monster thriller and more like a, a psychological yeah, kind maybe of Maybe someone like, like a... fully sides with the dinosaurs and starts like going Jurassic Whoa. on people, like trying to sabotage everyone else. So they can't uh, get off Leave. the island and kind of to uh, because they take sides in this. Um, kind of who has the right to be here sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, wow, this took a a sharp left. Which would really if you <laughs> if if you do some like aggressive um color coding in the movie, I can just see as that person turns the opportunity to do a lot of Ooh, neat color things there. there. I don't know. Yeah, I think in the shape of water, you know, the villain is is really a, a driving force of different ideologies. Um, and we also understand why he makes the decisions that he does and, you know, what drives him. And so um, I think the best villains in, in movies in general are the guys who don't necessarily believe that they're the bad guys, that they're doing this for a reason. And that reason, it goes towards a greater good or, or whatever the case may be. And so we could get more from mm-hmm. the villain uh, maybe who looks to have a, a god complex and rule over the dinosaurs, or I like what Bryce suggested and have somebody who uh, goes to the side of the dinosaurs and says, nobody's ever going to find this place again. You're all going to die. That'd be really scary too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be pretty scary. Especially be... if it was Jeff Goldblum. Ooh, ooh. that halting speech. <laughs> <laughs> Hear it in my nightmares. <laughs> Uh, this is kind of a sidebar, but Josh, as someone who um, pr- actually understands how movies are made, unlike me and Hannah, how do you watch a movie um, watching for the director? Because I admit, when I this is one of the first sure. times what do you that I look I've, for. Is that yeah, it? this is one of the first times that I've sat down and watched the movies. Men like, 
all right, I'm looking for insight about the director. And part of me thinks I know what I'm doing, uh, but part of me knows that like thousands of people work on movies. Um, and even though, you know, the director calls the shots, like you've pointed out in the past, you know, you can tell the work of particular cinematographers and this sort of thing, or, um, and the way people edit things, which again, I know to, to a large extent comes down to the director, but different people's touches are evident in a movie. So when you watch a movie trying to learn something about the director, what do you attend to? Uh, I think one thing with directors is you kind of have to look at consistencies across the various movies and the movie genres that they go into. And so I think that's one thing that you can kind of look at. Looking at, you know, these themes like what we pulled from from Del Toro of him looking at the other and just kind of his visual style is is darker, I would say, than than most other um, storytellers. You've got, you know, Blade Two, which happens almost all at night. Pan's Labyrinth has got this kind of fantasy dreamscape, but it's also very dark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think kind of the the visual aesthetic of the film, um, really great auteurs. And I think that's a, a, a distinction to make too, is if you want to take a look at what makes this a really good director is, is um, look, at, look at bad directors or inconsistent directors and directors who are just uh, mm. kind of doing things because it's a job versus maybe they wrote and directed the movie you know they have more stakes in it, and so they care more about, yeah, not only how it looks but how it unfolds and and things like that. I don't know if that really helps at all. No, it it is helpful, and that's something I suspected. Like you maybe can't learn about a director just from watching one movie, but it sounds an awful lot like doing homework to me. Hmm. Yuck. <laughs> ah, I just <laughs> I just want to have a movie podcast where I don't have to do work. <laughs> What's the music like? Because I, I was going to go into the music. I think next. the music good is thinking. super important, yeah. and we've kind of done this before, and maybe didn't come up with good answers for the Breakfast Club episode. But <laughs> um, at least in Pan's Labyrinth, melody was very important to Del Toro, mm-hmm. um, and so he would basically reject any music that you couldn't hum. <laughs> if you couldn't find a melody, he didn't want it. Um, and so I'm curious. Yeah, well, that's, I'm glad you brought this up because I wonder, in a Guillermo del Toro Jurassic Park, would John Williams still, still do be doing the music. the music? And John Williams is great at melody for kind of the themes, mm-hmm. right? The kind themes of, of anthems yeah, almost. Um, which I, I think fits, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think that, that makes sense for... But yeah, um, obviously, John Williams is not the only uh, composer who can create melodies. Right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's kind of, that's another tough question, but I I think John Williams maybe can stay. Yeah. Although I think it does depend on which of these options that, um, Del Toro, um, takes advantage of, you know, if he does decide to give us a more sympathetic kind of introspective work, you might not have this grand adventure. uh, Yeah, exactly. You know, you might have something a little more. Uh, contemplative mm-hmm. or if he goes the pacific rim route there might be lots of electric guitars so much guitar there's a there's a lot of options here and that's one of the things i think is just interesting about del toro he's a very distinctive director um has made some movies that are very different from each other yeah that's what's kind of baffling to me is like you you almost just can't compare something like pacific rim with 
Shape of Water or Pan's Labyrinth, but here we are trying to do it. Um, and it, yeah, it seems strange that it's the same person behind everything. Um, but kind of like we were saying, we can still find these kind of motifs that he likes or is drawn to. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Absolutely. Any final, final thoughts, thoughts we think we need to get in there? Yeah, I think if Del Toro had done Jurassic Park, uh, it would not have been the adventure film that Spielberg made. Uh, I think it would have been more subdued and a little less uh, dinosaur crazy and a little more dinosaur careful, uh, if that makes sense. <laughs> Like That's what that. I need in Jurassic Park. They should have been more careful with the dinosaurs. <laughs> I I get what you're saying. Yeah, I think I would say, so I've not seen either of the new Jurassic Park movies. Jurassic, I guess, I guess there's one Jurassic World and then there's the laughably terrible trailer for the next one. Um, I've not seen either of those, but if a Guillermo del Toro Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World movie came out, I would see that movie. I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think we've kind of got this interesting new world where maybe maybe the dinosaurs are actually the heroes and man is the enemy. Man was the enemy man the whole is, time. Man is always the enemy. Um, but yeah, kind of a darker, like Josh said, maybe more subdued and, and certainly more symbolic movie. Mm-hmm. So that was our analysis of uh, what if Jurassic Park was directed by Guillermo del Toro. Analysis is a strong word. Uh, well, but all right. We did our ramblings. That yeah, that was our ramblings about this topic. Tell us what you think. If you have any other uh, motifs or th- themes or ideas um, about this, we want to hear what you have to say. Uh, how ca- how can they do that, Josh? Uh, well, they can do that a couple of different ways. Um, they can they can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash what if movie pod on twitter at what if movie pod do the social media please and what do we got up for next week josh a little bird told me it's something a little new and exciting yeah it is uh, a little new and exciting uh we are going to be addressing a fan given question Ooh! thank you fan uh, yes, our our one fan who <laughs> gave us some suggestions. We picked one of those out, and next time we will be answering the question: What if the trademark DeLorean in Back to the Future had been something else? Ooh. Oh my gosh! Some good options here. I'm just excited that I get to watch Back to the Future again. That is exciting. I already called dibs on time traveling horse. <laughs> That sounds complicated. Damn right. <laughs> well, I'll be excited to see what you guys think and what I think. What, what will I think? That's what we're all listening to find out. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, be sure to tune in Tune in next time. Uh, I realize that's an antiquated. I never know what to say. We're, we're on a podcast. I know you don't tune in, but tune in. Right. Please. Yeah, they're not, not tuning in. Make sure to sit around the radio with your Ovaltine. And yeah. <laughs> I strongly suggest that you put your laptop inside of a large wooden box Ooh. and gather your family around, around to listen to that box, make noises. Sounds great. 
and be sure to to like it when you do that. Yes, tell your wooden box that you like this podcast <laughs> so that others will also tune in on their wooden boxes. All right, I think we've taken this far enough. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, film fans. One last thing before we go. We here at What If are really thankful for all of your likes and all of your listens the past month and a half as we've launched this podcast channel and we've got some really great creative questions and film scenarios on the way for all of you and going forward we would just really like to maybe set up some goals for our podcast and of course we can't do that uh, without you and so by March 1st we'd really like to see our Facebook page facebook.com slash what if movie pod grow to 50 likes and followers also, we're really trying to put out a request for audience questions. Uh, they can be general movie questions, ideas for future what-if episodes, or Star Wars-related questions specifically for the Star Wars podcast. Uh, we'd love to include all of our listeners and really make this a much larger conversation across our channel. So thank you for all of your support. Thank you.